listeners, welcome to Seize the Day, a podcast from the Duke University Marine Lab. I'm your host, Lisa Campbell, and today we bring you an episode from our Conservation and Development series. As regular listeners will know, students in my class of the same name produce these episodes, and they don't always focus on a marine issue. That's true of today, when former students Bo Bainey, Victoria Grant, and Katie Ridgway take on the controversial issue of wildlife poaching. Whether wildlife hunting is illegal or legal, for sport or for food, for sale or consumption, it is almost always controversial, particularly if charismatic wildlife are involved. Think lions, elephants, rhinoceros. Bo, Victoria, and Katie tackle this topic from a variety of angles, looking at the history of the term poaching, changing attitudes to hunting over time, the role of social media, and the lengths to which governments and organizations will go to combat illegal practices. I'll turn it over to them now. From WDUML, this is Concerning Conservation with your host, Bo Bainey, Victoria Grant, and Katie Ridgway. Today we are taking a closer look at the poaching narrative in militarized enforcement. Picture yourself on a safari in the Serengeti. There you are, sitting in stadium-like seats in an open-air jeep, waiting for a real-life encounter with what you may have only had had the chance to see through crowded windows at a zoo. As you wind through dirt roads, you see a giraffe stretching its neck to grab a bushel of leaves, a baboon swinging on a vine, a herd of elephants at the water's edge, Your tour guide talks about the poachers who attempt to illegally enter the park and kill these majestic creatures, and you wonder, how could anyone want to take the life of a sweet, innocent pangolin? But what isn't he telling you? What aren't you seeing? Did you see any locals? Did you see any park rangers strapped with guns? Did you see a drone flying overhead? Probably not. You're here to see the natural beauty, not the locals who've been removed, who have shared this land with wildlife for generations. Not the locals who struggle to support their family's most basic needs, who are forced to resort to poaching. Not the armed rangers who have the green light to kill such poachers on sight. You're not meant to see any of this, because if you did, it might dispel your past convictions of the evil represented by poaching. Convictions that have propagated the current narrative. What we're interested in is if you, our listener, did see this, or at least learned about it, would you question the measures it took to make this wildlife a reality? Let's take a look. Poaching. Think about your usage of the word. Unless you're talking about how to make eggs benedict, you likely associate it with negative actions. Poach a customer, poach a seat, poach an employee, i.e. theft. Although illegal hunting has more recently been substituted as alternative, value-neutral terminology, poaching is still the de facto language used in this discourse, and as such, we have chosen to use it in our discussion. American social scientists Robert Muth and John Bow Jr. defined poaching as any act which directly contravenes the laws and regulations established to protect wild, renewable resources. The concept of poaching has existed since those in power began asserting property rights, limiting access to priorly available natural resources, such as animals, plants, and lumber. 
Eric von Essen et al. traced the word back to the Middle English pochen, meaning enclosed in a bag. Continuing to focus on medieval England, poaching was criminalized under William the Conqueror, who aimed to preserve hunting grounds for the Anglo-Saxon aristocrats. <laughs> Similar scenarios played out in continental Europe, exclusion of locals for the benefit of the nobles. These new restrictions were enforced with the threat of imprisonment, along with the odd penalty of death here and there. Unsurprisingly, these regulations were wildly unpopular with the commoners. According to German forest historian Winfried Freitag, poachers at this time were any non-member of the court, but primarily peasants and commoners. The reasons were simple. Attempts to reduce wild animals' damage to their fields, a direct source of food, an indirect source of money from the sale of meat, and a general form of protest. And although poaching was almost universally labeled a crime in Germany's principalities, enforcers were met with a wall of silence from the rural population. These poachers were rooted in said communities, as were the honey masters charged with enforcement. These types of violations can be broadly labeled as folk crimes, which Muth and Bo describe as criminal acts that, although they may be fairly widespread, fail to constitute a serious violation of public sentiment. But somewhere between Sherwood Forest and today, the public sentiment towards poaching shifted. No longer is it championed as a form of harmless protest against tyrannical rule as in the tale of Robin Hood. Instead, its practitioners are painted as opportunists who flout universally recognized laws to get their jollies or make a quick buck. There was no great shift in the harshness of penalties levied for poaching. Instead, its perception among the people as an acceptable activity changed. As Freetog puts it, the killing of animals as a leisure activity and hobby is seen as reprehensible to the vast majority of the population. This shift in public sentiment allowed for greater enforceability and implementation of game and hunting laws. Cue the 19th century. With the arrival of colonial Europeans to Africa, a similar sequence of events played out, but in a far more concentrated time period. Entering the 1890s, colonizers were fascinated with the exotic fauna found in their new imperial lands. Given sports hunting's popularity in Europe, it was naturally taken up here by the colonial elites. Colonists such as Ed Buxton, who founded what is now known as Fauna and Flora International, characterized the expansive wildlife as a precious inheritance of the empire, and hunting for game as an honest sport that must be played fair. But what exactly does play fair mean? And what is honest about it? For the elites, fair and honest meant using sophisticated weaponry to hunt their prized game as opposed to the methods practiced by the savage tribes, as alluded to in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Handmade traps and snares, viewed as primitive and destructive forces on wildlife, were unfair practices in the eyes of the colonizers. They took it upon themselves to preserve their newfound inheritance by jailing and fining the natives who infringed upon it just as they did to peasants and commoners in continental Europe. Somewhere down the line, jailing and fines weren't enough as the colonial masters began to fear extinction of certain species and the depredation of populations. Framed through the ever-pervasive Judeo-Christian view of the colonizer, the possibility of depletion was characterized as a loss of Eden. It had to be saved, not from themselves, but from the destructive forces of the natives. Stronger mechanisms were needed to protect their inheritance. Interfortress conservation. 
a practice that views natives as dangerous and destructive to the natural landscape, a practice where nature and people should be separated and where conservation target species need to be fenced off. Now enter game reserves, a section of the natural landscape off limits to natives, but mostly free to the exploits of the colonists. Jane Carthers, a scholar in the social history of African national parks, details the creation of one of the first reserves, the Savvy Game Reserve in South Africa. Patrolled by game wardens, they did not hesitate to seize or deny firearms to natives or fine them for trespassing. Reserves are also created to settle land claims, and as Carthers later mentions, land grabs are easier to justify when cloaked in the garb of conservation. This was codified in the Convention for Protection of African Flora and Fauna in 1933, which ushered in the era of national parks and wildlife reserves, where the removal and displacement of natives effectively became a prerequisite for preservation. But where were these evicted, uncompensated natives relocated? For some, it was recognized undesirable lands where their prior ways of life were impossible. For others, it was lands bordering the reserves and parks called fringe communities where trespassing had dire consequences. Robert Nelson, a scholar in the field of environmental colonialism, details the relocation of the Maasai, which may serve as one of the most provocative examples of displacing a people for the creation of parks. Throughout this period, the Maasai were evicted from their lands for the creation of the Serengeti, Terengeti, and Nairobi National Parks, as well as other reserves. They are predominantly pastoralists, and their methods of trapping fauna that damaged their crops were viewed as a threat to wildlife at large by colonists. In reality, the Maasai had practiced agriculture and wildlife control for centuries to no ill effect. In the post-World War II development boom and the following period of decolonization, the Maasai sought to reclaim these lands. In the mid-1950s, the Tanganyika legislature voted to cut the size of Serengeti Park in half in order to allow them to reoccupy. Ultimately, this proposal was shot down by international conservation actors, like the Frankfurt Zoological Society, who still had the final say in essentially every decision related to conservation matters within the Serengeti. This final say is important in the context of development because as African states gained independence, they depended on aid, money that came from their colonial counterparts, which also meant respecting their wishes. Therefore, in the conservation sphere, many of these stipulations came from foreign governments, development organizations, international NGOs, and their constituencies. Not only did these groups directly give governments money, in doing so, they provided political legitimacy to government actors who used these funds to continue past practices of exclusion and removal of their own people to preserve protected areas. As Kadu Sabunya, president of the African Wildlife Foundation, says, there's a line of continuity and conservation between the colonial period and the last six decades of interdependence. This line of continuity has led organizations that fuel development to become the new colonizer. As post-colonial conservation scholars Jadiv Singh and Honk Van Houten detail in the contemporary situation, international actors have placed an increased importance on the economic value of parks and reserves. In other words, wildlife has commercial value, where the utopian romantic version keeps the influence of the conservation of it in the hands of the foreigners. For international actors, poachers disrupt the romantic portrayal and economic value of wildlife and parks. 
by stigmatizing the poacher as an antagonist through the systematic removal of natives from their lands, poachers have become a burgeoning threat that has necessitated an interventionist style of conservation practices that are tied to the still ever-present imperialist relationships. One of the ways this burgeoning threat plays out is from the lucrative financial returns in the illicit trading of wildlife. Q, 1975. The Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, or CITES, was internationally enacted to ensure the trade in endangered species did not threaten their survival. The confusing nature and overlap of CITES appendices severely complicates even legal avenues of trade, and secondly, enforcement of regulations is severely muddled. For instance, CITES allows and monitors trading under a permit system. The problem is these permits are easily falsified and forged, defanging such a system. Additionally, intercepting illegal wildlife trade is not a high priority for states. National security apparatuses are more concerned with the entry of illegal arms and drugs more so than tiger bones. A more recent development has been the framing of poaching and illegal wildlife trade as a means of financing terrorism. In this respect, the current narrative is groups such as Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, and Boko Haram exploiting the opaque trophy market to launder and fund their operations. A convenient story, framing conservation within geopolitics, but misleading and exaggerated, as conservation scholar Rosaline Duffy details in her paper, War by Conservation. The genesis of this narrative can be traced back to a widely cited but dubious story, published by the Elephant Action League, or EAL, in 2012. An NGO dedicated to disrupting wildlife crime, EAL's paper, The White Gold of Jihad, claimed that during the duration of their study, from 2009 to 2012, three tons of ivory were smuggled out of East Africa a month under the auspices of Al-Shabaab, the earnings of which were ostensibly used to fund their operations, most notably the Westgate Mall bombing in Nairobi, Kenya, in September 2013, which resulted in 71 deaths. Following this horrific attack, the EAL report began to receive greater attention. Duffy relates how the paper was cited in numerous reports and news articles, making the tenuous connection between terrorism and poaching. NGOs such as Conservation International and Wildlife Conservation Society promoted the idea that engaging in conservation could contribute to national security interests. Later, former U.S. President Barack Obama issued Executive Order 13648 to combat wildlife trafficking. Duffy writes of this poaching terrorism narrative, It demonstrates how poachers are defined in ways that provide the foundation for calls for a more forceful approach to conservation that can deliver a win-win of primarily contributing to global security and saving species as a secondary positive outcome. The latest portrayal of poaching as a result of radicalization and terrorism financing is happily propagated by both governments and private organizations. It is also worthwhile to examine other sources of imagery that feed into our current antagonizing view of the poacher. Enter social media. It reinforces and alters narratives regarding wildlife issues. The dialogue often negates the value of human lives while overvaluing animal lives. For instance, Twitter has become a common space where you can witness in real time the hatred of the poacher and the love for wildlife. In July of 2018, the UK Daily Mail published an article about the deaths of three poachers on the Sabuya Game Reserve in Eastern Province, South Africa. 
According to the author, Jamie Pyatt, Sibuya game staff discovered a bloody scene. One head, a number of bloodied body parts, three pairs of shoes, along with high-powered hunting rifles fitted with silencers, wire cutters, and an axe, which are often used by poachers to cut off rhino horns. The suspected poachers were thought to have become the dinner of the reserve's lion pride. The article received thousands of comments, including... Excellent! These wild animals deal better justice than our own law system. And... Hope the lions haven't got indigestion. Comedian Ricky Gervais from the hit show, The Office, retweeted the article with the caption, Rest in Pieces, spelled out P-I-E-C-E-S, on his Twitter account. His tweet received over 60,000 likes and more than 8,000 retweets, along with over 2,300 mostly positive comments. In contrast, people can be found guilty of wildlife crimes in the court of public opinion, like in the case of Cecil the Lion. In July of 2015, a famed lion known as Cecil was killed by an American dentist, Dr. Walter Palmer, outside his reserve in Zimbabwe. From CBS News reports, some speculated that Cecil was lured out of the bounds of his protected area and was then shot by a bow and arrow, tracked for a 10-hour period, and later shot by a rifle. Cecil's death created an international uproar. Although Dr. Palmer did not face harsh legal ramifications, the public was not as forgiving. He's despicable. He's, he's a killer. He's a murderer. Poor Cecil. I mean, how many lions do we have left? You have to kill them all. What are our kids, what are our grandkids going to see when they're older? You know, it's, it's, it's not right. It's just plain not right. Animal rights activists posted Dr. Palmer's personal information online, and upon his return to the U.S., Dr. Palmer faced harassment and his home was vandalized with messages like, Lion Killer. Activists pressed for legal charges to be brought against the dentist and even called for him to be extradited to Zimbabwe. The excitement caused for injustices to wildlife and competing imagery for resolving the poaching crisis has sparked a new conservation movement to address a more aggressive view of the poacher, one in which the poacher has to be taken out completely. But let's pause for a moment. How did we get here? Rewind to the 1980s. The idea of fortress conservation began to be questioned as conservationists started to see the potential benefits associated with involving local communities. In contrast to fortress conservation, this community-based conservation argued that people in and around protected areas should participate in the management of natural resources and that conservation could work to solve development needs in these communities. The idea behind community conservation was that people poached because they had no opportunities to work and needed to feed their families. To stop poaching, provide people jobs through community projects to implement stability. By ameliorating the conditions that precipitated poaching, the problem would disappear. But despite these arguments, major international players continued prioritizing investments in military technology rather than community-based approaches, and ignored the role of community input in conservation goals. High-level conferences continue to gloss over the role of local communities. In 2013, out of 14 urgent measures identified at the International Union of the Conservation of Nature's African Elephant Summit in Gaborone, only one addressed the need to work with local communities. Without attention to community-based approaches, the need to quickly resolve the poaching crisis encouraged greater investment in what Duffy terms war for biodiversity, which has evolved into the conservation approach known as green militarization. 
As defined by York University scholar Elizabeth Lundstrom, green militarization refers to the use of military and paramilitary actors, techniques, technologies, and partnerships in the pursuit of conservation. How does this play out? Policing of national parks and reserves, forcibly evicting populations to create, maintain, or expand protected areas, and the use of military equipment, like drones, to survey protected areas. Militarization of conservation has also contributed to changes in policy. Botswana, for instance, was one of the first countries to adopt more aggressive anti-poaching approaches, like a shoot-to-kill policy, which allows armed park rangers to shoot and kill suspected poachers on site in protected areas. A perfect embodiment of militarized conservation in action can be found in the case of Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The park is most well known as one of the last remaining habitats for endangered, endangered mountain gorillas. Threats to this flagship species were a central theme of the 2014 Academy Award-nominated documentary Virunga, which introduced new audiences to the issues facing the park. Two Belgian political ecologists, Esther Marnian and Judith Verweijen, examined the narratives espoused in the documentary in leading up to the current conflicts. The legacy of Virunga is similar to most sub-Saharan national parks, exclusion and displacement of local peoples, proliferation of fortress conservation, and current green militarization, exemplified with shoot-to-kill policies. Marnian and Verweijen focus specifically on the spectacularization of militarized conservation and how imagery and narrative have been used to further current agendas. In casting conservationists as heroes and poachers as villains or other, the actors are able to create a simple but powerful narrative of us versus them. Casting this current struggle as a green crusade, any skepticism about diverting NGO development aid to special forces training or deploying mixed battalions of park rangers and Congolese army members is washed away. These conflicts are even marketized to concern private citizens with impassioned pleas for funding on their website. The Virunga Foundation goes as far as framing supporters' donations and concrete anti-poaching actions, such as $8 for a new pair of ranger boots, $50 to support the widow and children of a fallen ranger for one month, $300 for one hour of flight time for an anti-poaching patrol, $1,000 for a comprehensive sweep and removal of deadly snares in the mountain gorilla sector. And the results? Increased further training and technology seems to have fueled armed group activity and exacerbated its conflict dynamics. The needs of the others continue to be dismissed, with only one out of seven Virunga Foundation sponsor programs addressing their needs, while the remainder stress military hardening. All of this aligns with our current narrative, championing wildlife and their defenders over fellow humans. Let's look at the impacts of this alignment. Is there evidence to support this shift in militarized conservation practice? Regarding Botswana's shoot-to-kill policies, two researchers at the University of Botswana say so. They argue that the policy not only reduces rhino poaching, but also sends a clear message to poachers. Wildlife is not the only thing that has to worry about guns. Other researchers in Zimbabwe also find that the policy has been effective in deterring local poachers from taking the risk to kill rhinos. So could the reduction in poaching events in these areas suggest militarization and resulting policies are a necessary evil to address the poaching crisis? Maybe. When looking solely at the population health of target species, yes, there is evidence to support shoot-to-kill policies achieve their aim. Economist Kent Messer identified a potential connection between shoot-to-kill policies and the rebound of wildlife populations. 
According to his study, there is a visible trend of increasing elephant and rhino populations with the implementation of the shoot-to-kill policy. When Zimbabwe implemented their anti-poaching unit, Operation Stronghold, in 1984, elephant populations increased by nearly 50%. Kenya implemented shoot-to-kill in 1989 and witnessed an increase in their elephant population from 17,000 to 26,000 in an 11-year period, along with an increase in the rhino population. Another way Messer examines the efficacy of these policies is from an economic benefit analysis perspective, relying on a value of a statistical life model. He argues that given the dire economic conditions and lack of any feasible alternatives found in the surrounding park areas, the economic costs of imprisonment or fines are too low to disincentivize the lucrative opportunity presented by poaching. In these instances, the threat of death is the only viable penalty. Yet even with the reduction of poaching events stemming from shoot-to-kill policies, hunting still exists. Which leads us to the second impact of the alignment of the current narrative. What effect do these policies have on people who continue to hunt? For starters, those living in communities on the fringes of national parks and reserves who poach for subsistence can be mistaken for commercial poachers. In other words, those hunting for small game to feed their families receive the same fate as those who hunt for large fauna, such as rhinos and lions that go towards the illegal wildlife trade. Furthermore, subsistence poaching methods like snares and traps, the very same methods that earned them the name of savage and barbarian during colonial times, are still used today. And although they're not typically meant to catch large fauna, that rare or unintended lion or other charismatic fauna that can end up in them perpetuates militarized enforcement, throwing mistaken identities out the window. Although plenty of literature brings up poverty as one of the main drivers of subsistence poaching, poverty has been primarily defined through income, leaving out other important indicators, such as the lack of power and voice and even lack of access to culture resulting from the systematic removal and exclusion of people from their lands. Thus, there is an inherent risk in further alienating and excluding local communities when increasingly militarized tactics are relied on. However, as Peter Goldwyn, Zimbabwean correspondent to National Geographic writes, Like it or not, the economics of wildlife are impossible to ignore. If the impoverished human neighbors of a wildlife domain see less advantage in conserving wild animals than in eating or selling them, then neither squadrons of helicopter gunships nor miles of razor wire fences will ultimately prevent them from poaching. Phew, that was a lot to unpack. Now that we've looked at the impacts, let's do some self-reflection. Any thoughts? Yeah, I actually have some concerns coming from the battle experience between wildlife and humans. The poaching crisis is a wicked problem that needs to be solved, but people are becoming the victims of new proposals to, to solve this issue. People and wildlife are in conflict, and the introduction of green militarization has put wildlife in the lead of this competition. The people hurt and shoot to kill policies are not the high-level players in the illegal wildlife trade. They're the low-level workers who are putting in the most risk for lease returns. I don't want endangered species to be killed, but I also don't want people to be hunted. So where is the middle ground that stops illegal hunting and does not harm the people who get caught in the crossfire? Can community-based conservation be the tool that solves human-wildlife conflict while resolving community economic issues? Recent relocation programs conducted by the Indian government may show relocations and executions may not be the only viable option for protecting species. Relocate people in tiger-dominated spaces to reduce human-wildlife conflicts and allow tiger populations to rebound. 
completely voluntary, people move to new locations where there is either not a viable habitat for tigers or have no current tiger populations. For the relocation, the people are compensated with solar-powered housing on two acres of arable land that and given seeds to start their farms. Learning about these programs, I have to wonder if they can be implemented in parks throughout Africa, and if so, why haven't they been? Well, you know, for me, I keep trying to imagine what this policy would look like in the U.S. That is, if our own park rangers were strapped with weapons and had the authority to kill poachers on site. Although I think we do a significant amount of stigmatizing the poacher as an antagonist, our negative feelings are not nearly enough to justify such an aggressive policy in the U.S. Because... We have the privilege as a developed nation to rely on our government and justice system to respond accordingly. Obviously, some African countries do not have the same privilege to rely on their government, and I feel that we're to blame for that. After independence, we never let them develop on their own, as we've constantly interjected our own conservation agenda. Consequently, as this agenda is played out, I think we collectively see and view Africa through what it is not, rather than what it is. Somehow, there's got to be a collective shift in this view, where wildlife and native peoples live together in harmony with their own unique methods of hunting and conservation practices, void from those in another continent. Yet, given the neoliberalization Africa has endured, I'm pretty pessimistic if we'll ever be able to see it this way. Both you guys have some really solid points there. I suppose I don't really look at this from possible solutions too much, more looking at it, I suppose, as like a systemic issue. Reflecting on my altered view, I can probably best sum it up as veering towards cynicism, or at least pragmatism. I mean, these ideas of wilderness and preserving African savannas versus the motives of the poachers have always been black and white for me, and now it's just like a thousand shades of gray. I mean, I remember seeing this documentary Virunga we brought up earlier, and having like no sympathy for the rebels, or even giving any thought to the locals who aren't even shown. Similarly, surprised by some of the actions by the big four uh, NGOs and how unethical their agendas can be at sometimes. From what I've read, like these groups are at least cognizant of the misconceptions surrounding poaching and park locals. But it's such a compelling story and continues to motivate donors that it's honestly not in their best interest from a financial standpoint to attempt to debunk this. For me, it all circles back to this imagined wilderness. Whether you're related to Ansel Adam photos or Nat Geo documentaries, there's a constant no people. This has never been the case though, so we keep ratcheting up defense measures to protect something that never was. And the ones who were displaced in the first place, to make this dream a reality, they continue to pay the price. And sometimes it's the ultimate price. We went different directions, but I feel like we all got something out of this topic. So the next time you flip open a National Geographic magazine to an essay on snares, see a WWF bus ad of a detest elephant, or turn on Animal Planet to watch a show about an anti-poaching unit comprised of retired American Navy SEALs, just keep in mind what, and more importantly, who you aren't seeing. For WDOMLs Concerning Conservation, this has been Victoria Grant, Katie Ridgway, and Bo Bainey. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Seize the Day, a podcast from the Duke University Marine Lab. Today's episode was written and produced in January 2019 by Bo Bainey, Victoria Grant, and Katie Ridgway. Bo Bainey edited the podcast and final editing was done by Hafa Lobo. Our theme music is by Joe Morton and our artwork is by Stephanie Hillsgrove. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts? You know you want to. Thanks for listening. <laughs>